Uh, what an absolutely beautiful way to start off the show. Everybody, welcome in to another edition of the Jim Bratton Sports Podcast. I hope you all are having fantastic Friday so far, and I'm going to go ahead and dive straight into what I'm going to be talking about today, because there is an absolutely massive football game that will be taking place tomorrow in Athens, Georgia, between the third-ranked Georgia Bulldogs and the number one football team in the country, the Tennessee Volunteers. And I have a very special guest on the show with me today. Uh, If you've listened to previous episodes of the show, you may remember him from my preview of the Tennessee-Florida game. Uh, He is the host of Overtime on Fox Sports Radio up in Knoxville. Uh, His name is Jake Miller. And Jake, I'm going to go ahead and give the floor to you to share your thoughts on the number one football team in the country, the Tennessee Vols. Yeah, Jim, I mean, it's absolutely an unreal feeling, uh, especially being a lifelong fan of this team and now being able to cover the team like I do. One of the things that struck me on Tuesday when I was doing my show, it finally hit me. I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, I am the only show in Knoxville that is broadcasting right now. I'm like, they're about to get a raw reaction from me Mm. as to what I think is going to happen. So we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, you start seeing teams start popping up on the board. You see LSU at 10. I'm like, whoa, that that might be a resume builder for us if we beat the number 10 team in the country. Then Mm -hmm. you see Alabama coming in, and then it gets to that final five, and you see Michigan. And then you see Clemson. It's like, okay, no surprise. And then it gets to number three. And I, I knew, like, in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, this is going to be us. And then Georgia pops up on the screen. I was like, oh, my goodness. I said, this is this is incredible. I said, we might actually have a shot. And then I said it again. I'm like, the batter ball syndrome has finally hit. I'm like, we're not going to be number one. We're going to get put at number two. And then. I say, and we wait for number two. And then Ohio State's name popped up on the board. And then the final one being, of course, Tennessee at number one. That's a surreal feeling, given where this program has been, you know, since the fall of 2017. I mean, in athletics as a whole at Tennessee has was at its worst point during that time. Now, fast forward to last year, I guess in January, when Josh Heupel took the job, there was not a lot of confidence It's like, okay, well, this guy's going to be out of here in three years, just like everybody else is. It's like, we're probably never going to get it right. But it's proven that we were just one coach away this entire time. Tennessee has only been a good hire away. And it's just as hard Mm -hmm. and it's as simple as making the right hire. And Tennessee made that right hire in Josh Heupel. Because when you look at the comparison between him and you look at Bob Stoops and what he did at Oklahoma, 1999, Bob Stoops comes in to a very depleted, very beaten and battered Oklahoma team. And then Josh Heupel comes in as his quarterback in year two after going seven and five the first year, wins a national title in year two at Oklahoma. And it's almost like he's mimicking what Bob Stoops did in those first two years. And the one thing that I'm going to say to all Tennessee fans, it's like we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But right now we know that Josh Heupel and company are 8-0. It's a magical season. 
and we have to enjoy this for what it's worth because, as we've learned before, you don't know when you're going to get another one. Absolutely, and I'm glad that you brought up uh, teams mimicking each other. You reference uh, Tennessee ref- this year mimicking Oklahoma in 99, and just over the last week or so, I've seen many different comparisons of this year's Tennessee team and LSU's team from 2019, the team that just came out of nowhere to, of course, win the national championship. Uh, do you see? Do you see any similarities between those two teams? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of similarities between the two teams. I mean, not just statistically, but when you look at the way that their season progressed in 2019, they progressively got better as the year went along. Of course, the defense started out rough. Our defense started out rough. And then they just kept battling, kept battling. And it seemed they just got better with each passing week. And I think the ultimate testament to that is, you know, this past weekend against Kentucky. I mean, Tennessee came out with more confidence than we had seen all year, more confidence than we had seen Jim, probably since you and I were in middle school or elementary school. I mean, we'll call it like it is. I mean, they were just just playing with so much confidence and not being able or not being afraid to go after the ball, not to just, you know, make the tackle, but to make a game-changing play, a a play that's going to alter the entire game for, you know, the next 60 minutes, however long it's going to be. I mean, that's the thing is Tennessee has put themselves in a position now to where they're very much mimicking LSU statistically and as the way the season progresses. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things that you said to me while we were kind of chatting a little bit before the show is that you don't get as scary in a good way, I might add, as Tennessee is right now. You were telling me that you don't think that they've even, they've even played their best game of the season yet. No, I don't think they have, and that's you know kind of a testament to you know the way we just talked about LSU 2019 and this year's Tennessee team. I mean, when you look at everything that's happened, the defense has gotten better with each passing game. The offense has found its rhythm, and right now it's one of those deals. I don't know if anyone can stop it. You know, we've heard all summer, we've heard, you know, throughout the whole season, oh, well, it's just a gimmicky offense. Okay. Well, we got film on you. Okay. Well, I think you've not played a good defense yet. Okay. Well, we played Alabama. Guess what? They couldn't stop it. I mean, that's the thing with this offense is it is so good. And this defense has progressed so much. But with the offense, you know, all I hear is, oh, well, somebody's going to stop it. Somebody's eventually going to stop it. Well, prove it to me. Prove that you can stop this offense. Prove to me that you can do it, and I'll believe it. Until somebody does, I don't believe anybody can. Yeah, the the Alabama game really shocked me, and I touched on this in greater detail earlier this week when I was doing my own college football playoff rankings. Uh One of the things that I really touched on was Tennessee's offense found a way to put up 52 points against a defense that is coached by Nick Saban. I mean, we're talking about Bill Belichick's top disciple, Nick Saban, which is absolutely remarkable to me. It shows just how hard Tennessee's offense is to stop. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up the Nick Saban point because 
um, you know, one of the things I think we took advantage of is the fact that, you know, in the past, Nick Saban has had coordinators. You know, he's had a Kirby Smart. He's had a Jeremy Pruitt. I know he didn't pan out as a head coach, but he was a great defensive coordinator. And then you look at others like Steve Sarkeesian and guys like that, and you start to wonder, it's like, is the talent pool for coordinators kind of going downhill? Because that's one thing that Nick Saban's been able to do ever since he's been at Alabama. He did it at LSU. He was able to surround himself with great coaches, you know, whether that be a coordinator or a positions coach, whatever that may be. He's been able to surround himself with guys like that. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, Jim, he doesn't have a Kirby Smart. He doesn't have a Jeremy Pruitt, you know, a Steve Sarkeesian, a Lane Kiffin, any of those guys anymore. And you start to wonder, it's like, has the game started to pass him up? You know, and I don't – I'm not saying the Nick Saban is going to retire in the next six months, but all I'm saying is, like, when you look at – you take Philip Fulmer, for example. You know, he had it going in the 90s. Everything was going good. And then after he lost in the SEC championship game in 2001, it's almost like he never recovered. And while he was trying to recover from that, the game kind of passed him by. You know, they had Randy Sanders. That didn't work. They bring back David Cutcliffe. And it was it was better than average for those two years that he was here. And then you try to bring in somebody like Dave Clawson, and it just did not work. And now there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not Philip Fulmer was able to make the right hire because there was still this thing going around. Well, maybe Philip Fulmer's afraid to make the good hire because he's afraid of someone doing to him what he did to Johnny Majors. Mm, that is very interesting considering uh, everything that's going on with Tennessee athletics over the course of the last few years leading up to where we are. Hey, I mean, it really is. And, you know, Philip Fulmer, I mean, let's call it like it is. I mean, he sabotaged the coaching search in 2017 to get the athletic director job that he wanted over John Curry, of course. John Curry ends up getting fired out of that whole ordeal, and he ends up becoming athletic director of the year at um, Wake Forest. And, you know, props to him. Granted, the Shiano Sunday debacle was so bad that he was never going to be able to recover oh, from that anyway. And, you know, of course, the thing there was it's like, okay, well, maybe he can go and hire Mike Leach and all is forgiven. But even if he had hired Mike Leach, I still don't know that all would have been forgiven with John Curry after what all happened that Sunday. Yes. I will, one thing I will say is that the Shiano Sunday situation was definitely one of the hardest moments that I've probably ever had as a Tennessee fan, just based on how big of a cluster you know what it ended up being. And it really just speaks volumes to the job that Danny White has done since he's come in and taken the helm of the athletics department. And, you know, the fact that Danny White's bringing in a Josh Heupel, who myself and plenty of other Tennessee fans, I'm sure had a lot of questions about that move at the time. But obviously, if you're a Tennessee fan, you've got to be pleased with the way the athletics department is being run now with Danny White at the top and Josh Leipel leading the football program, Rick Barnes leading the men's basketball program, and Tony Vitello leading the baseball program in particular. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that you have to look at with that, Jim, is the fact that, you know, we talk about 2017 and you look at where the athletic department was then. I mean, the baseball team was an afterthought. I don't think you could have given me tickets to a baseball game, you know, back in 2017, 2016, and really even coming up through middle school and high school. And then you look at the basketball team, you know, after Bruce Pearl, there was the okay year with Conzo Martin and then the debacle with Donnie Tindall and Rick Barnes hadn't really got it going yet, but you know, when the athletic department was at its worst, you know, we thought, okay, well, Philip Fulmer's going to come in and save it. Well, no, he's not going to come in and save it. Yeah, the basketball team got rolling. The football team, you know, stayed stagnant at pretty much where it was, and it didn't really get any better. Baseball team shot into the national spotlight, but when uh, Danny White took over, uh, he really had the hardest job in America at that point. You were dealing with a school where football is king, and your football program under Jeremy Pruitt was under NCAA investigation for, I think we totaled it up as like 55 level one violations, totaling $60,000 in impermissible benefits. I'll be honest. I'm surprised that it was that low, but you know, that was the hardest hire to make because you could not go get a big name coach. You couldn't go steal a Lane Kiffin. You couldn't go steal, you know, a Brian Kelly because you look at the Tennessee job at the time and it's like, why would I want that job? They're under NCAA investigation. We don't know what's going to happen with that. I don't want any part of it, and I'm not getting dragged into it. Now, Josh Heupel, you know, was like, okay, yeah, this is a chance for me, so I'm going to take my opportunity. I'm going to run with it, and that's what they've done, and that speaks volumes to what Danny White and company have done. I mean, they're they're incredible. I mean, let's call it like it is. What he has done at Tennessee is incredible, not just with the football program, <laughs> but now we're going to have our basketball team, which is probably – Let's call it like it is. It's probably a Final Four roster. Now we got to see what Rick Barnes does in March, you know, see if he can get that done. And I hope he does. And I know everybody else does too. Mm-hmm. But we got to see what he does there. And Tony Vitello, he's made it to Omaha. He should have made it back last year. But I mean, as you know, Jim, that's just the game of baseball. You know, just yeah. because you are the best team does not mean you will always win. And that's something that, you know, a lot of Tennessee fans, you know, we're kind of new to this baseball thing. We're not used to it. So, it's kind of hard explaining to some people who might have been just a casual watcher of baseball. It's like, okay, the Braves are on TV. The Cubs are on TV. I'll watch a game here and there. But when you look at it, it's like, okay, this is kind of like the NBA. It's kind of like the NFL. The best team does not always win. Right. Yeah, no, no doubt. And going back to – you mentioned Josh Heifel saying – just coming in and saying, okay, this is my new opportunity for me and I'm going to just run with it. I don't think, I can't even remember the last time I've seen a coach just be so overjoyed and overcome with emotion to be at the spot he is at. I mean, you've seen it from just his sideline interviews post-game after the Bama game and the Florida game. And it's just really refreshing to me to see a coach be so excited to be where he is. Yeah, and we talk about it all the time. You know, the fans getting behind the players or the fans getting behind the coach, it's a completely different thing when the coach gets behind the fans as well. And one of the things I think that started with, as much as people don't like to bring it up, the Ole Miss game last year. When he had that post-game press conference and he was kind of, you know, kind of smirking at the camera when he got asked questions about the fans, you know, it is what it is. And I was like, okay, I think this guy gets it. 
I knew right then. I was like, this guy gets it. Like, this guy was like, yeah, these guys probably shouldn't have done that, but I don't blame them for doing it. And when you see what happened with Florida and the fans gator chomping while Florida's band is playing the gator chomp song, and then Heupel coming in after in the post-game pre- – or not the post-game press conference, but the on-field interview post-game, and he just interrupts the reporter. And he's like, how much fun is this, man? How much fun is this? God, I love it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's when we knew, like, he's happy to be here. And then Alabama, when he was just built up with emotion, couldn't contain himself, it's like, that's what we needed. We didn't need someone like Butch Jones, you know, crying on the field at Georgia when Georgia hadn't done anything yet. You know, I mean, that's mm. the difference in those two coaches. You got a guy that is on the field balling his eyes out after beating Georgia. And then you have Josh Heupel, who is thrilled as can be, looked like one of the best days of his life. The field is getting stormed. Goalposts are coming down. Players are loving it. Peyton Manning is in attendance. He's loving it. And by the way, the Peyton curse got broke that game. But, you know, it's just mm-hmm. – it's incredible. You know, when a coach not only buys into the team, but when they buy into the fans as well, and you are connected as one. It's like there's no separation between the fans and the players or the fans and the coaches like we've seen in the past. Yeah. Um, one thing that stands out to me is I think it's pretty much fair to say, pretty fair to say that there's a night and day difference between Josh Heupel and Lyle Jones. I mean, Butch Jones. Yeah, I mean. But, <laughs> oh, man. So I just, I just feel the need to point that out. The man's real name is Lyle, okay? Lyle Allen Jones. Lyle Allen Jones. Unbelievable. Uh, let's, wait, let's switch gears and talk about this game tomorrow here for a little bit, Jake. Now, look, uh, Tennessee is – obviously going to be facing a Georgia defense that I believe is the number two ranked defense in all of the FBS. What sort of challenges does that pose the Vols offense? Uh, I can't think of a challenge because, like I said earlier, you know, prove to me that you can stop it, and I'll believe that you can stop it. But until then, I don't think anybody can stop this offense. I mean, you look at what – Jalen Hyatt, Cedric Tillman, Hennon Hooker did this past weekend. You line two guys up. It's those two guys, Hyatt on the inside, Tillman on the outside. They're about 30 yards away from the ball as it is. So you got your two guys lined up in man on them, and you've got your safety covering whatever he decides to cover. So the way they did that is Cedric Tillman on the outside runs a five-yard and slant in. Meanwhile, Jalen Hyatt's running the wheel route. And that safety that should be going towards Jalen Hyatt picks up on Tillman and there's not a guy within 20 yards of him. And this isn't stuff that's just happened against Kentucky. This happened against Florida. This has happened against LSU. This has happened against Alabama. And these are, I mean, let's call it like it is, Jim. They're good defenses. We just were that good mm-hmm. on offense. We're just that good. The only thing that I can see giving us issues, and this is the only thing, the only player that's going to give Tennessee issues is Brock Bowers, you know, while we're on defense. Because Stetson, he's an okay quarterback, right? Mm-hmm. They've got a good running game, but we also have one of the best front sevens in the country. Brock Bowers, that is the guy that will be the guy to shred Tennessee if it happens. Now, I say that because, yeah, he can catch. He's a big tight end. He's got the size, but he's also got speed. And that is something you don't normally see 
out of a guy his size. And the fact that he's that big and able to move like he is, he's as mm-hmm. athletic as he is, it's honestly incredible. Like, I made the comparison. I think it's like Jason Witten and Kellen Winslow had a baby and then Brock Bowers <laughs> was born. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up Brock Bowers because that was actually the next point that I was going to make is how dominant he is. And when you turn on the game film, I mean, to me, all I can see is a miniaturized version of Travis Kelsey from the Chiefs. That's how dominant Brock Bowers has been. What does, and before I get to my question, I'm just going to rattle off some of his numbers to show how dominant he has been. Uh, This year, he's got 31 catches for over 500 yards and three touchdowns. The numbers may not scream excessive production, but you mentioned speed, which is really what kills any opposing defense that is facing Georgia. What does Tennessee need to do defensively to slow down Brock Bowers, if not stop him? See, I've been trying to figure this out all week, really since last Saturday. I was sitting here. I'm like, how are we going to stop this guy? As I'm watching the Florida-Georgia game last week, I sat there and I'm like, well, you can't do this because this will happen and you can't do that. And I finally thought I had it. I'm like, wait a minute. Let's go, let's think basketball for a second. Because if you're playing zone in basketball, but they have a really talented guy that you need to lock in your best defender on, you go to the box and one. Your four guys play zone, but you keep that one guy in man-to-man on him. However... I don't think we have anybody that can keep up with him because if you put Trayvon Flowers on him, what's going to happen there is, yeah, Trayvon's going to be able to keep up with him as far as speed, but he can overpower him. I mean, the guy's got at least 50, 60 pounds on him. And then you can't put Jeremy Banks on him because Jeremy Banks doesn't have that speed to keep up with him if he does break away and go down the sideline. So I don't know. Like, that's my big thing. I don't know how Tennessee contains Brock Bowers. At that point, you just have to hope you score more than they do. Yeah. And, of course, as you mentioned, uh, Tennessee, their offense cannot be stopped or has not been able to be stopped up to this point. And when you're going up against Brock Bowers on the opposing offense, obviously you are going to need to match that and – that's something that I don't think Tennessee's offense is going to have a problem with. The only question is if Brock, but if Georgia can find even more creative ways to get Brock Bowers the ball is what most concerns me. Yeah, I mean, and that's pretty much what it's going to be. I mean, they're going to find ways to get him the ball. And I think, you know, obviously Kirby Smart is an intelligent human being, and he's going to find a way to get him the ball because that's going to be his biggest threat. Now, I don't think that Georgia's going to be able to run the ball like they have been. I think they're still going to be able to move the ball and run it pretty well, but I don't think that they're going to absolutely kill us on the ground game, and that's what they like to do. They're, when you Because you, when you look at their receivers, you look at the receivers and it's like, okay, well, this guy doesn't scare me. This guy doesn't scare me. They don't have George Pickens back there anymore. It's like he scared me last year. I don't have him to worry about anymore. And then you look at McConkie, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I'm supposed to be scared of this guy. 
Okay, I'm not scared of this guy. But like I've said before, when you look at the tight end position, you see number 19 lining up. Uh, yeah, you you know you're in for a day. And it could be good and it could be terrible. There's no in between. There's not. Uh, of course, you you mentioned the uh, running game for Georgia. I've just got some numbers from a few of their running backs that I'm going to rattle off. And even Stetson Bennett can make plays in the running game. I mean, he's got he's actually got five rushing touchdowns on the season as well. And you look at Edwards, he's carried the ball 71 times for over 400 yards and seven touchdowns. And Kenny McIntosh has 69 carries for over 300 yards and six touchdowns. And I really feel like the running game is something that Georgia employs a little more in short yardage situations. And I just think that's something that Tennessee's really going to have to keep an eye on defensively. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, but like I said, our run defense, I'm 100% confident in them. And that's just not coming from a fan perspective. I mean, that's just from, you know, looking at the stats, you know, what we did against Alabama, how we were able to contain them. You hold LSU, I don't even think they got 100 yards on us. I really don't. Um, and then you look at Kentucky, which is supposed to be a run-heavy, quote-unquote, real football, to quote Will Levis. And <laughs> they didn't do anything against us. And I'm I'm not really worried about our running game I'm or run defense. I'm really not. So I think that's going to be a big uh, – it's going to be a big surprise for a lot of people tomorrow, but when I look at the stats and I see the final score at the end of the game and if Tennessee has shut down Georgia's running game, I'm not going to be surprised about it. Yeah, and going back to the passing game, uh, one of the things that I think really helped Tennessee in the game against Kentucky last weekend was their pass defense because you mentioned Will Levis. This is a guy who Kentucky's – offensive coordinator has said is going to be the first overall pick in the NFL draft. And he goes out against Tennessee and is forced into throwing three interceptions and only threw for 98 yards for the entire game. And so I think that speaks volumes about where Tennessee's pass defense is as well. Absolutely, and that's something, like I said, you know, we've seen them get better and better every week. And as far as Will Levis being the number one pick – oh, what, excuse me, the number one overall pick, um, man, I don't want to – I don't want to ride it off just yet because, I mean, he could get to the next level and he could be effective because, you know, that's oh, just no how, doubt. Because that's just how football works in that sense, you know, especially at that position because we're always expecting an A.J. McCarron – a Greg McElroy, a John Parker Wilson, or somebody of that sort to go to the NFL and make an immediate impact just because they played under Alabama or they've done this, they've done that. Same with Ohio State. Yeah, they've got explosive receivers. They've done this, they've done that. But how many of those quarterbacks do you ever see pan out in the NFL? But then how do you – or how many do you see from schools just scattered across the country that do really well? Now, if you want a linebacker from Alabama, yeah, he's going to go to the NFL. He's going to be an impact player, all right? Most of the time a receiver – comes out of Alabama, comes out of Ohio State, guess what? You've got a guy for life. 
Same with LSU with their wide receivers. And hopefully Tennessee is going to get back to that with their wide receivers. So I'm not ready to write him off just yet as a terrible quarterback at the NFL level. I got to see it to believe it first. But as far as Will Levis and his college stats, man, I mean, let's call it like it is. They had one good year last year under him, and they're probably going to go seven and six this year uh, at best. Yeah, and again, I'm I'm not taken away from the job that Will Levis has done since he's been at Kentucky. And looking ahead to the draft, there's going to be a lot of high-level quarterbacks coming out in this draft. Not only Will Levis, but also C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young and, of course, Hendon Hooker as well who I think is very much improving his draft stuff. Absolutely. I mean, and to speak to Hendon Hooker, I actually got the chance to speak with his parents uh, last week for our uh, pregame show that we do, the Tennessee tailgate. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that's going to help him out is character. I mean, that guy, he surrounds himself with good people. He's a good person himself. And you could see that through the way that his parents did their interview. It's like when you talk to them, it's no surprise that Hendon Hooker is who he is as a person, as a football player, you know, with the dedication that he puts towards the game, with the way that he's respectful to the media, the way that he interacts with the community. Um, he's actually got his own book that he uh, markets towards children. It's really cool. And, you know, it's one of those things you can't be more proud of it as a Tennessee fan. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal what he's been able to do, not only on the field, but off the field. He got two NIL deals this week as well, man. He signed a deal with French's Mustard. So it's cool <laughs> to see them playing the card and jumping in on the fun there. But then also signed a deal with Mercedes-Benz of Knoxville. So Hannon Hooker, he's got Mustard for the rest of his life, and he's going to at least have a Mercedes while he's in Knoxville. <laughs> I, do, I, I will say that I do think the uh, French's Mustard agreement is – just really funny and ironic, especially when you go back to how Friends Mustard came to be when it comes to association with the Tennessee Vols and really where the Tennessee Vols have gone as a football program since the oldest game last year. It's really remarkable. It really is, and I mean, with the flask at the Ole Miss – or the mustard ball at the Ole Miss game last year, uh, that was probably someone's flask that they were using. I mean, someone had put liquor into that and stuck it into the stadium. That's probably why someone actually had a mustard bottle on them because no human in their right mind is going to carry around a bottle of mustard. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny because someone else posted something on Twitter earlier in the week, Jim, and they said it's like, it's like the Bible saying that Tennessee football is meant to be great because they – had a picture of the mustard bottle, and then they were like, something to do with the mustard seed. The bigger the mustard seed, the more it will move the mountain. And I'm just like, well, that's an awful, awfully big mustard seed because that seemed like they moved the biggest mountain in the world times 10. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Want to go ahead and switch gears to the Tennessee-Georgia game from more of a national perspective because 
this is not the only big game this weekend that's going to have playoff implications. I mean, you've got Tennessee, Georgia, obviously, but you've also got LSU and Alabama on Saturday night, tomorrow night. And I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on taking both of those games into account what you see happening after this weekend from a college football playoff perspective. So this one is weird because, you know, we tend to refer to the conference championship games as like the de facto uh, quarterfinal game, basically an elite eight game. Mm -hmm. And this almost seems like it's the de facto SEC semifinal. When you look at what's going on right now, the winner of those two games probably going to Atlanta. Now, it's one of those deals Georgia could win and then play Alabama because I I don't see LSU winning, but it wouldn't surprise me if they did. Now, if LSU does win, then Tennessee has to worry about playing LSU in Atlanta, and that's something that Tennessee fans are very familiar with and we're not too kind to that history. But, you know, while we're exercising demons, let's just go ahead and get them all out. You know, let's go ahead and hammer this one out too. You know, it's basically the Tennessee Volunteers Revenge Tour for this year. You exercise the Florida demon, right? You exercise the Alabama demon. The Peyton Manning curse has been lifted. All of these things that have happened that we have blamed in the past, they're all gone. Like all these curses, they're gone. Everything has been handled. Everything has been exercised. I want nothing more than it for it to be Tennessee and LSU in Atlanta. They beat us twice in Atlanta. They're not going to beat us the third time. All right. And I know how hard it is to beat a team three times or two times in college football, just like beating them three times in college basketball. But Jim, I think that this year you're going to see something tricky and it's going to be in the form of LSU making that push. Mm-hmm. No doubt. And when you look at the momentum that Brian Kelly and his family, as he calls them, have built over the last couple of weeks. I mean, the Ole Miss game stands out in particular when LSU just boat races Ole Miss. And that was a game that really shocked me, but I mean, even since, ever since the Florida State game that LSU played in week one, where you can make an argument that they should have won that game, uh, just to see them on the run that they're on is pretty scary, honestly. And when you look at the way that Alabama has struggled over the last few weeks against teams like Tennessee, Texas A&M, uh, you begin to see the logic behind the idea of LSU possibly knocking off Alabama. And it's it's strange to see. And I'll be the first to tell you, I did not expect to see them at number 10 in the college football playoff rankings. And Neither did I. I'm even more surprised that they are a 13-and-a-half-point underdog going into this game tomorrow, much like I'm surprised about Tennessee, now a 7-and-a-half-point underdog. But, you know, this is one of those things, too. And, Jim, you know this to be a fact. The national writers 
your national media personalities want it to be Georgia and they want it to be Alabama. And the only reason they want it to be Georgia and Alabama, much like they want it to be Ohio State and Clemson, is because it makes their job easier. You're talking about people here like the Dan Wilkins of the world, the Pat Forties of the world, now this idiot from Ohio State and this fat guy that covers Notre Dame that refuses to put Tennessee inside the top five in the AP poll. I mean, here's the thing, Jim. These guys could not do their job if they actually had to go out and do research and do what they're supposed to do for their job. Now, a lot of these guys are just analytics guys, and I get that. That makes their job easier. But when you really want to do your job, if you really want to stand out and you want to be that guy that knows what they're talking about, you have to make that extra jump as a reporter, as an anchor, whatever you are. You have to make that jump as well to be able to cover a team like a Tennessee, like an LSU, you know, a TCU. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's another one. We didn't even mention TCU. It, they would die if TCU made it into the college football playoff. And I'm not just saying this, you know, just to go off the rails. I'm saying it because it's true. I, don't, I really don't think they would know how to do their job if those teams were to get in. Absolutely. And another thing that I've noticed about the coverage or lack of coverage that Tennessee has had from a national perspective is that people just don't really like change. They don't like seeing teams that have not been this high up in the rankings and have had this much exposure on the national level being where they are. And that's another thing that I think has a really big impact on the way Tennessee is being covered. I mean, I was watching first tape today on ESPN and they mentioned something about how they asked the question of can Tennessee possibly pull off the upset against Georgia? And of course you mentioned the line and the fact that Tennessee is a seven-point underdog. But when you look at the rankings, Georgia has a three next to their name. And last time I checked, Tennessee had the number one next to their name. So, and another thing is the resume that they never talk about from Tennessee's perspective on the national level. And the fact that Tennessee has five wins against teams ranked in the top 25 and Georgia does not have those five wins, obviously. And I feel like that's another fact that on a national perspective is being completely ignored. It's absolutely been ignored. I mean, that's it's just playing back into what I was saying a few minutes ago. I mean, these guys don't know how to effectively do their jobs and do it the right way because they don't want to. And, you know, it just – it really bothers me because I'm one of these people, I don't believe that we should have a preseason poll. I don't believe that we should have rankings until about week eight of the season, which is – I mean, that's what the college football playoff rankings are for. I'm one of these guys, like, I love the idea of just letting everything play out. And then let's see who has the best team, who has the best resume mm-hmm. from that point. Because there is a case to be made, you know, like Tennessee, for example. Yeah, we beat LSU in Alabama. We also beat, you know, Kentucky, who was in the top 25 at the time. 
Now they're not because we beat them. But also looking at teams like Pittsburgh and Florida. Yes, those two teams were ranked when we played them. Yes, it is correct. They are no longer ranked now. I think that would eliminate some of this discussion. It's like, okay, who's really the best team? Who has the best record? Who's putting up the best numbers? Who do we actually rank at number one? And then you just go off of strength of schedule. Then you're not having to go off of strength of rank. You're not having to worry about, oh, well, we've got a you know, 8-0 team sitting here at number 11 in the country or whatever it may be. And it's like, okay, well, who have they played? Well, they beat this team. They beat this team. Okay, well, why are they number 10? Why aren't they ranked higher? And then you look at a team like Georgia. Oh, well, they're 8-0. Okay, cool. Who have they played? Oh, well, they beat Kent State. They beat Missouri. They beat Vanderbilt. Okay, well, that's not impressive. It's like when you beat a team that is, you know, a two-loss team max, like LSU, for example. Mm-hmm. It's like you beat a team like LSU. Okay, that's cool. We'll give you credit for that. You beat a team like Alabama, one loss. Okay, cool. We'll give you credit for that. Ole Miss, same way. You beat them, good job. Good for you. You deserve to be ranked high, okay? But then you look at Georgia, and they've not played anybody. And that's kind of where I get aggravated with the national media as well when they, they refuse to take this into account. Your people like Dan Walken. Ohio State is another example, Jim. The only quality one they have really right now is against Penn State. Let's call it like it is. Mm-hmm. Notre Dame is hot garbage. Everybody else they played has been hot garbage. And I wouldn't rank Ohio State as high as it did. I'd maybe put Ohio State at number three or number four. Maybe, exactly. right there, maybe right there with Georgia. Now, a team that is not getting a lot of credit that I think deserves more is TCU. Like, I really do believe that TCU deserves more credit than what they've been given. Mm-hmm. Especially in – when I was doing when I was doing my own version of the college football playoff rankings before the committee came out with theirs, uh, one thing I talked about was the fact that I was struggling with who to put in number four. Eventually, I ended up putting Clemson at number four. And by the way, just for the sake of personal privilege, I want to point out that if it were not for the number two and number three teams being flip-flopped in terms of the way my rankings were and the committee's rankings, I would have correctly predicted the top four. So I was just, so Jake Miller, I was just one move away from basically being one of the oracles of college football. So I just wanted to go ahead and point that out. But the reason why I was struggling with putting Clemson at number four is because of the job that TCU has done. I mean, ever since they inserted Max Duggan into the starting lineup at quarterback, he has been absolutely remarkable. And I don't have his numbers in front of me, but if I remember correctly, he's thrown for over 2,000 yards. He has thrown for 22 touchdowns and only two interceptions. And I just feel like if a team like Clemson starts to struggle and TCU keeps on the roll that they're on, I think that they can overshadow TCU. I mean, the thing, Clemson, with the, excuse me. 
Yeah, I mean, and you look at TCU, one of the things that you know amazes me with them is their story is almost similar to Tennessee's. Granted, they got it rolling a, a year sooner than Tennessee. So the reason I make that comparison, Jim, is when you look at Tennessee, Joe Milton was the starter last year. It was not Hendon Hooker. And then Hendon Hooker comes in. Much like how at TCU, Max Duggan was not their starting quarterback, and then he comes in, and he's all of a sudden great. It's like a great accident happened. You know, kind of like myself. I was a great accident. But that's neither here nor there. But it's just like, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen. That's not what they had in mind. But we're glad that it did because it has worked out in everybody's favor. You know, and props to TCU for that. You know, they just put Duggan in there, and he's done phenomenal things with the football. I'm not going to lie, man. I kind of enjoy watching TCU. And I'm not a Big 12 guy. Yeah, and this the way the way TCU has been playing offensively, it really reminds me of Tennessee in a lot of ways. But, wow, that that's uh that's a really good point. And I think that the way TCU is playing just speaks to how many questions there are going to be as far as the teams that are ranked in the top four as we move down this final stretch. Yeah, that's uh it's gonna be interesting to see, you know. And and you see it just as much as I do, Jim. You know that if Clemson is undefeated, they're gonna get that fourth spot. And then the winner of the Big Ten is gonna get the a uh, second spot. And you're most likely to have two teams from the SEC in. And that's the sad part about this four-team college football playoff is the fact that there are teams that should be in that will not get in. And, yeah, we've heard talks, oh, well, they shouldn't have expanded it to 12. They should have left it at four. They should have just expanded it to eight. Jim, let's call it like it is. The only way that this is ever going to work, a college football playoff is only going to work if you expand it and hear me out to 32 teams. The reason I say that Mm. is because every single conference champion gets in your power five and your group of five all get in. It's like, okay, guess what? We're going to treat it like basketball. You win, you're in. Now you're at large bids. Those can get a little dicey, but at the same time, it's like, well, I mean, you had your chance. It's like, you could have got in here with three losses and you didn't do it. You know, you have four losses. You might be able to sneak in, but at that point, they have nobody to blame but themselves. And someone asked me, it's like, well, that would devalue the regular season. I said, well, the only thing that's going to devalue is a conference championship game. And the conference championship game is probably going away if that happens. I don't think it ever will, which I also didn't think we'd ever see an expansion of the college football playoff. And I didn't even think we'd see a college football playoff for that matter until we got into what mm-hmm. we were juniors in college, sophomores in college when that finally happened. I'm sorry? The college football playoff, I mean, it wasn't around before we were in college from the time you and I were born up until we graduated high school. And I think it was after our our freshman year in college is when the college football playoff actually happened. Right, I believe it was – I believe it did start my freshman – I guess that would have been our freshman year in college because I remember the championship game of the first – college football playoff being Ohio State going up against Oregon 
with Marcus Mariota. Oh, yeah, that that's right. Was because first, I believe that was the first CFP national title game. It was because I remember our friend Ryan Foley told me that Ohio State was going to win, not made the case for Oregon, and then I just looked like an idiot after it. <laughs> uh, just, that really just shows how wild it is that we've had a playoff for that long. And because, I mean, that, that game was 2014, so that would have been, what, seven, eight years now? Oh, man, it has been that long, hasn't it? Wow. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up expansion because even after we moved into the 12-team playoff format in a few years, I think that there are still going to be teams on the outside looking in that want to get into that conversation. And I think the question might become – do we eventually expand to 16 teams or to 32 teams? I mean, the 16-team 16, 16 is inevitable at this point. You expanded it to 12. They're going to complain about it being an uneven amount of teams. The only people that are going to be happy about it is a team that stays in the top four all year and gets that first round by. That's not going to be enough. So they're going to have to expand it to 16 teams. And then that's not going to be enough because you're going to have teams on the outside looking in that probably should have made it. That's why I think 32-team – is the best solution just because if you don't make it, you have no excuse. I mean, let's call it like it is. If you don't make a 32-team college football playoff when that takes 33% or actually not, it's not that much. It's 25% of the teams in college football and puts them in a playoff, you have no excuse. Right, exactly. Uh, One more quick thing before I'll let you go is what is your prediction of the final score in tomorrow's Tennessee-Georgia game? Well, it's funny you ask because I made my prediction earlier in the week um, via FanDuel. And I'll tell you a little little bonus Jake nugget here in a minute. Uh, It's going to be easy money for everybody. But I made the prediction – that the score was going to be Tennessee 42, Georgia 35. I placed just a dollar on that bet to bet the correct score, and the odds were at plus 29,000. So I bet a dollar, and if it hits, I get $290. Mm -hmm. 24 hours later, I checked that. The odds for that got cut in half. I'm feeling a lot better about that dollar bet that I made, and at this point, I wish I'd have put 100 on it. So I'm going Mm -hmm. 42, 35, Tennessee. Wow. Yeah, I'm with you on that uh, as far as the score goes. I do think that, you know, we were talking earlier about Tennessee's offense and the way they're playing. And meanwhile, you look at Georgia's offense with Brock Bowers. I think this is definitely going to be one of those games where defense is optional. It very well might be. And, I mean, if it is and we win, I'm not going to say anything about it just because we're going to score more points. And that's just what Josh Heupel does. You know, if you make people play Heupel ball, you lose. Excuse me. We win, they lose. It's like LSU and Brian Kelly, for example. Brian Kelly tried to play Heupel ball 
and he lost. That's what happens when you try that. You just don't win. Now, Jim, before we hop off, I'd like to give everybody my best bet of the week. And that is right now. It's right now on FanDuel. If you go over and then you click on the Tennessee-Georgia game, and then you have tabs at the top for your props, right? So Mm -hmm. you scroll over your props right now. Uh, Where did it go? There it is. So, like I said, you get on FanDuel, you scroll down, you go to the Tennessee-Georgia game, and you go over to scoring, not scoring, excuse me, totals, away total points. Over under for Tennessee, 27 and a half points. That might be the easiest money, more so than taking the Tennessee first quarter spread because out of the eight games we played, it's hit six times. This is the easiest money I've seen all year. Take the over on away total points with Tennessee and Georgia at over 27 and a half. That is easy money for everybody this weekend. No doubt. And, I think, and uh, as of course, as Clay Travis would say, let's get rich, kids. Let's do it. I mean, if you need a promo code, if you're new to FanDuel, use the promo code OVERTIME when you sign up, and you will get probably – I think you get a free bet right now when you use the code. They're running different promotions all the time. Right now, I'm pretty sure you get a free bet. And that applies to NFL bets. That applies to NBA bets. It applies to a lot of stuff, so it's, it's real cool. Just use the promo code overtime at FanDuel. You heard it here first. Uh, with all of that being said, Jake, I guess that's all the time that I have for the show today. Thank you so much for uh, hopping on the Jim Bratton Sports Podcast and talking balls with me. I appreciate it. I hey, appreciate you, Jim. It's always a pleasure. Yes, sir.